everybody. This is Dr. Bruce Pierce with the next episode of my podcast, Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. And today it's March of the year 2022, and it's Endometriosis Awareness Month. So to discuss this important topic and bring awareness to endometriosis is a special guest of mine, a colleague here at Penn Medicine Princeton Health. She is a board-certified gynecologist. In addition to that, she is a fellowship-trained, minimally invasive GYN surgeon. Please welcome Dr. Shama Matthews. Hello, how are you? Hi, Shama. How are you? Doing well. Can I call you Shama or Dr. Matthews? Oh, please, Shama. I'll call you Dr. Shama. All right. Just to, you know. All right. So, Shama, Dr. Matthews, um, endometriosis is a problem I think we both see in our practice, and especially you as a minimally invasive GYN surgeon. So, can you just briefly tell everybody what is endometriosis? So endometriosis is a condition um, where cells that resemble the cells that are on the inside lining of our uterus are found outside in places they don't belong. So the way I typically describe that to my patients is sometimes it can be in the ovary that can cause a cyst called an endometrioma. Other times it can be um, on the surfaces of the uterus, within the muscle fibers of the uterus, or even further outside in what I call the wallpaper of the pelvis. So like it's called the peritoneum, the lining that surrounds all of the organs in the pelvis. So these cells find themselves in these locations they don't belong, and then they respond to hormone. So every month when we get our cycle, these areas inflame, locally bleed, fill with this chocolate fluid that we see typically in endometriosis and endometriomas, and then that causes scarring and then pain. So many times patients will describe um, very painful periods, even from a very young age, um, from the time that they first got their period, they'll describe that they had terrible cramps, that they missed school, they had nausea and vomiting. Um, Many of these women will have GI symptoms like bloating and um, diarrhea, constipation, urinary symptoms like frequency, urgency, um, pain with sex, um, and the list goes on. So I think one thing I learned in doing my research for this podcast is how common endometriosis uh, is. So I think I heard it was like now one in 10 women have this? Yes. And I would say in my personal experience, I would say it's the same. Um, I see a lot of women that have, um, and young girls that come in with these complaints. Um, Sometimes it's just by talking to them and finding out, oh yeah, they're on a birth control pill. Okay. Why'd why'd you get put on a birth control pill? Oh yeah. These terribly painful periods when I was younger. And even those kinds of things, you know, sort of drop hints. Yeah. I think uh, also to bring awareness to endometriosis is this common uh, misdiagnosis, I guess you would call it, or lack of diagnosis, and these women just searching for years uh, to find a cause of their pain. Yes. um, They say that it takes up to eight years for a woman to be diagnosed, um, and then she might see anywhere from three to five different specialists in that time. So a lot of times before they see one of us, they may see a gastroenterologist because of their GI symptoms, a urologist because of their urinary symptoms, a pain specialist because of their pelvic pain, um, all of these different things before somebody is able to sort of put it all together and realize it's the same diagnosis. Yeah, I think the issue is, I think we're not only bringing awareness to um, the public, but also to uh, providers as well. Um, uh, Usually it's the general practice doc uh, or the primary care doc who may see these symptoms first, and then uh, their 
general OBGYN uh, also. But I think, uh, you know, the delay may just be from, a, I guess, either a lack of knowledge, a lack of awareness, how common it is, etc. Right. Um, I also think there's a lot of uh, myths that kind of get propelled, even in our own profession. Tell me about the myths. Um, like I, I feel like a lot of patients, you know, have been told, oh, if you have a normal ultrasound, you can't possibly have endometriosis. That's a big one. That's completely untrue. I would say I think close to 80, 90 percent of my patients have normal ultrasounds, right? And then we right. go in for surgery and we find that they have varying, you know, uh, states of disease. Um, and then the other one is that, you know, young patients, oh, no, you know, you can't be diagnosed when you're a teenager or you can't be diagnosed, you know, in your 20s. Um, it's, a, it's a disease that presents later in life, and that's not true either. Yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine. It, you know, usually in the younger women, especially women of color, and they go to their either their primary doc or even the emergency room, you know, as you know, uh, endometriosis pain could be so severe uh, these women are in the emergency room. And if they're younger and sexually active, and especially if they're women of color, they just get labeled with PID Absolutely. And, and sent home. Yes, and, they're, they're told they have pelvic inflammatory disease, which obviously has the connotation about sexually transmitted diseases, et cetera. And many times endometriosis, I agree with you, I think endometriosis is missed because of that. Yeah, I see the, you know, I'm sure you do the same thing. See these women in the, in the office after coming back from the ER for follow-up, and they said, oh, I was told I have PID, uh, you know, as you said, which is a sexually transmitted disease. And I'm like, oh, really? Uh, why did they tell you that, your culture? was positive and they go I don't know they didn't do it or, or either, they probably did it but it wasn't back yet by the time they left so I always look in the you know the chart and I would say 90% of the time it's negative right right <laughs> and and then the history too right like so many times again I'm like asking back well tell me about when you were a kid what were your periods like you know other family members and and you hear all these little sort of tidbits that I think are sort of hints that you know sort of lead you towards endometriosis even before surgery Right. All right, let's dial this back a little. Let's, uh, for, I guess, those to bring awareness. So you mentioned it is these endometrial, meaning the cells inside the uterus glands outside of the uterus. How do they get there? So that, I think, is still kind of hotly debated. <laughs> How many years later? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, so there was a, you know, a big theory for a long time that, um, that what happened was that the, the cells from when we get our period actually traveled backwards through the fallopian tubes and then inhabited areas in the pelvis. Um, I've seen a lot more research actually point towards the fact that these cells probably implanted way, way back when we were embryos developing. Um, and they're sort of cells that got lost, or we probably have some genetic predisposition disposition so some kind of genetic you know um, uh, code that tells them oh go go to the wrong place but that's what they're being told and so they do that and then they implant and then sort of turn on as as time goes on um, I think that makes a lot more sense um, a lot more yeah, um, yeah just you, the way that people present it, and if you and it, we'll get into treatments in a, in a moment but if you think about it if that was the case all you had to do is remove the uterus the endometrial cells or uterine cells are gone, then you're cured. Right. But that's not true. No, absolutely not. Right. right. Yeah, so there clearly has to be a, a different uh, mechanism. And we're, like you said, they're still working on it. They are doing a lot of, um, you know, gene therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, and Yeah, right. so that seems to be the hot the hot area, which makes, as you said, makes much more sense than the what we used to call the retrograde menstruation or, the, right. or uh, bleeding backwards uh, into the pelvis. I mean, there, are, there could be some some truth to that but there's more to be discovered but again that's why we're bringing awareness because 
you know, I think this was, condition was discovered in the 1920s and we're 100 years later <laughs> and we're still talking about what causes it. So, okay, so if you're a patient and, again, let's go over the symptoms again. You mentioned them, but let's, you know, I think it's important that we that discuss that it's not just period pain, correct? Right. Um, so I typically ask more pointed questions about how painful periods are. Um, do over-the-counter medications help? Um, do you ever miss school or work because the pain is so intense? Um, you know, are you doubled over in pain um, during the start of your period? Um, you know, uh, do you have other bowel symptoms like nausea and vomiting that come across, come along with it? Diarrhea, changes in bowel habits, um, urinary um, symptoms. Do you have any pain with intercourse? Um, so I think, you know, it's more than just period cramps that go away with some, you know, ibuprofen. It's more beyond that. And then how is it affecting quality of life? Yeah, again, maybe that adds to the delay is the symptoms are not necessarily gynecologic related. Right. They're your gastrointestinal the, and, they're, and they're bladder related. You get a lot of bladder pain, pain you know, pain with intercourse, as you, as you mentioned. But sometimes a patient will actually not go to their gynecologist because they're not necessarily having period pain, but all these other things associated with it. Right. So, uh, all right, so let's uh, take me through. I'm a patient again. I'm, maybe I am. Interesting, you mentioned those. I actually do have those symptoms, and, and these pains are debilitating. What do I do next? Where do I go? So, you know, I usually start with just kind of an initial evaluation. We'll do a, we'll do a physical exam in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, I often, personally, I do both a vaginal exam kind of tradi- like the type you typically have and then I often will do a recto vaginal exam um, which is definitely uncomfortable um, but it allows me to feel for behind the uterus behind the cervix and that's kind of the area that endo often lives um, so it gives you a good idea if there's any hard nodules if there's any tenderness on the ligaments that are behind the cervix um, that can be very um, telling in the patient's um, exam um, and then imaging, I often will send them just for a baseline ultrasound just to know um, if they have any cysts or anything else that could be helpful. Do you think an MRI is worth it? You know, I, I sometimes get it, especially if patients will have a lot of, like I said, bowel-related symptoms or, you know, certain descriptors that they might say about how their bowel movements are, um, those kinds of things, because I wonder if we'll be able to see the disease sometimes in the layer between the rectum and the vagina. Um, but I have to say, most of the times, I'm disappointed that I don't see anything on MRI. And and good luck getting it paid for by right. insurance as well. So right. that's also a, quite the struggle for, uh, for us practitioners. So I agree there. All right. So you have a patient which you highly suspect endometriosis, mm-hmm. which, which that's the big one. We, we highly <laughs> actually suspect it. Um, and we did imaging. Nothing's there. Uh, typical. Um, they're of childbearing age, let's say in your 20s. Um, what's the next step? So it really depends. I kind of, you know, explain all this well to my patients. It's sort of a Endometriosis, unfortunately, is a chronic condition. It's going to be something that this woman's going to be battling until she reaches menopause. So personally, this is just my personal approach. I don't think there's a wrong way to go about it. Um, I think we can, if we can get it under good, the symptoms under good control, I think if we can restore our quality of life with medical management, I think that's appropriate um, if surgery is necessary. And again, we kind of say gold standard for diagnosis is surgery, but many times we can kind of almost call it based on have that really high 
suspicion based on their um, symptoms. So I don't necessarily take every single person to surgery just to prove my point, right? Like right, So right. I might um, say, okay, we can do surgery, we can absolutely confirm it. The benefit of surgery is being able to actually clean up some of the disease, release some of the adhesions, um, restore some of the anatomy, and some of that will actually also be helpful for um, symptoms. Um, but then I also say that it's a layered approach. So there's, there's always medicine on the bo- on, t- on the table as an option. Um, I often will also recommend certain kinds of low inflammation diets, which I find really helpful in the patient's um, uh, bowel symptoms and pain symptoms. And then um, also I'm a huge proponent of pelvic floor physical therapy. I send almost everyone for that. What's that? So a pelvic floor physical therapist is a physical therapist that's specially trained in pelvic floor dysfunction. And that can go one of two ways. So that's for women um, and men that might have urinary leakage, um, incontinence, even uh, stool um, leaking or incontinence, that kind of thing. And then the other way, which is what kind of what we see with endo patients, which is pelvic pain because of tightening or hypertonic muscles um, and, um, you know, sort of spasms of the muscles in the pelvic floor, causing spasms of the bladder and the rectum as well. Um, so many of these patients, like on that pelvic exam, if they're particularly painful, we can actually do an assessment to see what the muscles of the pelvic floor feel like. Um, and some of this happens because they've been in pain for so long. The muscles have now sort of tensed up in preparation for pain all the time, um, whether it's with sex or bowel movements or whatever, um, you can help relieve some of that by teaching them stretches and exercises. The physical therapist can work on that, work with them one on one. And I do warn my patients, it's kind of, you know, it's very personal, it's one-on-one, it's internal and external manipulation. They might lo- use different modalities, including heat and laser and, um, and you know, um, physical massage and stretch and breathing techniques. It's really very involved, but I, I highly recommend it to most of my patients. I, too, am a big proponent of the pelvic floor physical therapy, and in fact, our next podcast may be with a pelvic floor physical oh, therapist, wonderful. so that's going to be awesome. So I agree with you 100% uh, there. Okay, so I agree. It's it's hard to, you know, I, I tell the patients too, the, the gold standard, quote unquote, is to do surgery, but, you know, it, not everybody's ready for surgery. Right. You know, uh, they're working or in school, and they really don't have time uh, to do, do that. But... As you said, we, there are other modalities. Tell me about medications. You mentioned medications. Sure. So, you know, many have already tried what, if you look it up, it's sort of first line is to do um, um, NSAIDs or, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Motrin, Naproxen, those kinds of medications. Many patients are already taking those things. Um, if they're not already on some sort of hormonal medicine, that's another sort of category. So that would be like the birth control pills or the progesterone IUD. Um, these are medications that locally deliver, um, the, so the IUD locally delivers and the pill systemically delivers, but hormones. It's giving hormone in order to establish more of a um, even level of hormones as opposed to the big sort of inflammatory cycles we naturally have. So as opposed to these big spikes in hormone that we get in our natural cycles, by taking a pill or having an IUD there, you're sort of creating a more steady state so you have less of these inflammation episodes. Right. So not it's not really curing the endometriosis. It's basically relieving the symptoms. Correct. Uh, and as you said, this is a, a chronic condition and we basically have to manage with all these multiple modalities right. um, and to get the patient through. Right. Um, but you know, sometimes it doesn't work and the pain is severe and it's affecting their life, right. uh, job, they're missing work. 
uh, employers tend to be not too responsive right. to, <laughs> to I guess, this type of uh, complaint. Um, but it is, you know, it can be very debilitating. Yes. Um, so then a lot of these patients then are ready for surgery. So tell me about the surgery for endometriosis. Sure. Um, so from a surgical perspective, um, it's it typically can be done minimally invasive. Um, so laparoscopic or robotic surgery with small incisions, a camera is put inside, and then we can assess the pelvic um, structures. And so I actually think minimally invasive gives you some... Um, advantages to open surgery because of the sort of the um, angle that you're coming in, your ability to sort of look at the tissue um, very closely, um, just the way that the the air that we fill the abdomen with kind of separates the structures out. So I think there's a lot of benefits to actually doing it minimally invasive versus open, which is kind of cool. And then the sort of there's different approaches to surgery. There's um, excision and then there's also ablation. Um, the excision means actually cutting the tissue out, so lifting up these areas that have these implants in them and trying to get it out at its base so that you're just leaving as much healthy tissue around as possible. Um, and then there's ablation technique, which is sort of um, using um, usually either laser or electrocautery, some kind of energy to um, burn away the top layer. That might work for some superficial and very thin level, but for the most part, I find that it can be very deceiving what's actually thin versus deeper. Um, and so, you know, I prefer and most of the studies sort of um, suggest that excision probably has better long-term outcome. Right. And the these excision surgeries are very difficult. Yes. Nothing strikes fear in the hearts <laughs> of the, the gynecologic surgeon like endometriosis does. Correct. It's on a lot. It can be around a lot of the um, important structures, like the um, in, most important and sort of uh, most sort of common area for it to be is just underneath the ovary where the ovary lies right on over the ureter and so the ureter which connects your kidney to your bladder runs right under that peritoneal layer so that's a very common area to have thickened irregular peritoneum with implants of endometriosis. It's also I think to me good if you're in an institution that has um, urologic uh, surgeons there or urogynecologic surgeons there and general surgeons because or colorectal surgeons because as you said the urinary tract is involved the bowel is involved often correct. and it's great to have you know resources correct yes it's um you know not uncommon where i will have a un predicted stage four um, endometriosis, which is sort of the most advanced stage of endometriosis. And that's kind of one of the other things about endo is you don't necessarily know what you're getting into. You can't predict how advanced the disease is just on, obviously, imaging is typically normal. Um, and so some patients may have very advanced disease involving some of these other areas. And I'm very lucky to have excellent colleagues that are, um, you know, trained minimally invasive to be able to come in and, and help. And other patients that either have a history of this or you kind of know they might have some of that because of some of their symptoms, you can actually plan um, to have your colleagues there involved. And that's the good news, if you, I guess, if you do need surgery for endometriosis, is that minimally invasive is now, I guess, the standard. Um, and I would say it gets a touchy, you know, we don't want to, you know, look down on other physicians in our practice. But I would say if, if, if somebody's doctors recommend an open surgery, I don't know, maybe get a second opinion or look for Correct. somebody trained with endometriosis uh, surgery that is minimally invasive especially with uh, the advent of robotics, which, you know, as you, as you and I know, is, is 
my personal <laughs> preference. <Correct. laughs> so, but to me, as long as it's minimally invasive, uh, that's the key. And I think to the patients out there, uh, you know, sometimes you know you're with your doctor for a long time, and they're and they're they're great in, in many aspects, but sometimes they're not uh, trained in minimally invasive surgery, especially for endometriosis. Correct. So it, I would, do you agree it would behoove them maybe, even if they're happy with their doctor, to maybe seek out a second opinion? Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, it's a very complex surgery. Um, so to, to seek out someone who, you know, is sort of well-versed in this particular technique is really important. Um, you know, there are wonderful practitioners in our field and they do a tremendous job with their patients Um, and many of them actually will refer to me as even just surgical consultation just for these more complicated cases because you know they just don't do these surgeries as often um, to be as comfortable with some of the you know um, complexities and some of the potential complications that could come up so um, I think it's you know it's a very good point for the patient to kind of take the time to do the research. So as you said, it seems to be that this disease is chronic until menopause. Is menopause ultimately the so cure? So I tell patients to take that with a bit of a grain of salt um, for two kind of reasons. One, yes, in some ways, menopause, because the hormone state changes, um, and as the estrogen levels decline, the disease can no longer grow. And so that often will sort of shut down any um, you know future um, increases or growing of the disease. So yes, from that from that standpoint, that's probably true. Um, but then there's two things that I usually point out. One, there are some studies that actually show that high levels of endometriosis can sort of make their own little estrogen factories, and that's kind of scary to think of, but they can do it and sort of self-propagate. Um, so there is some research that suggests that. Um, and then the other thing is, sure, the implants might be gone. In, not gone, but like inactive, right? They're no longer inflaming every month because there's no cycle every month. But some of the scar and some of the pain, like the pelvic pain that's sort of developed, some of the bowel habits, some of the, you know, um, bladder function, those kinds of things that have developed after years of having endo sort of affect those those muscles and nerves and organs, um, that doesn't necessarily go away with menopause either. Um, so I have a lot of patients that, you know, we still kind of work through how how do we manage this chronic pain or urinary issues or, again, the pelvic floor physical therapy often comes in very helpful at this time. Sometimes you get in this dilemma. You have this patient with severe intractable pain You've tried everything else, including surgery, um, but the pain persists. They're still fertile. They're still in mm-hmm. their childbearing age, and they come to you. Yeah, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm 30 years old. I've been dealing with this my whole adult life, uh, or post-pubescent life, and and I'm missing work, and I'm in the ER, and I might be getting addicted to narcotics. Um, and I want a, hyster- a full hysterectomy, ovaries out. I know I'm 30. I have no kids. What do you tell that, that type of patient? Um, actually, I'm not opposed to that. So I, I would say there's a couple of different things to kind of um, delve into there. One um, is the 
is, I think you were correct in saying full hysterectomy, ovaries out, because I think many people have been, again, this is another myth, misguided into thinking removing the uterus is going to treat endometriosis, and it doesn't. Um, the ovaries being left there will continue to produce hormone, so you can actually still have endometriosis pain, and you can still have new onsets of endometriosis implants if ovaries are still left in place. So basically what we're talking about is inducing surgical menopause. Um, I will often discuss not only surgical menopause as an option with them, but also medical menopause. So there are some medication options that um, also sort of fall under that category. They're called GnRH antagonists and agonists, which are both available um, in pill form and injection form, which can sort of medically induce a menopause. And this might not be a bad thing to kind of introduce even before surgery just for the patient to understand what their body might go through during that time. It could be a way to transition them into it. It could be a way to see, okay, how much of the pain are we going to relieve because it truly is hormonally um, driven versus how much of the pain is there because of all of those, like we talked about, those muscle changes, nerve changes that might need to be approached a bit differently. Um, so I might sometimes kind of delve into that side of it, the medical side first, but I'm not opposed to surgical, um, you know, um, surgically inducing it with ovaries and uterus, particularly if the patient understands what that means, you know, what the implication is for her uh, from a hormone state. Um, and then often because, you know, by taking away the estrogen, the big concern is that they're at higher risk for osteoporosis and heart disease. Right. Um, I will often discuss with them some level of hormone replacement therapy um, where we can start some low levels of estrogen to help protect their bones and their heart, but hopefully not so much that we're you know, causing any endometriosis to, um, to grow. Right, I think this is, a, a, I guess, a controversial in our, in our field because there seems to be, you know, well, we have to preserve the I'll say the woman's, uh, right. the uterus owner's uh, um, fertility at all costs. Right. You know, some people call that a, a fetocentric, uh, you know, bias. But um, but it's true. Like uh, I guess we've always been, I guess, taught that. Oh yeah, yes. Don't uh, remove somebody's fertility uh, until they've. I don't know. Now you have you have to be the guesser of how many kids you think they should right. have. It, it gets kind of silly because that's not our decision well, to make. Well, I also think that there's so many resources that are available now, too. So, for example, I can have a conversation with a woman about does she want to potentially preserve her eggs before she moves forward with this and then have the option of surrogacy at some point. Um, you know, there there are so many different things that, that can be sort of nuanced out. and And I think patients now, I give them a lot of credit. They've done their research. They've done their, you know, they're, they're um, very involved in the community. There's a lot of options and, and information available through social media. And, and they know what the implications are as they're talking to you about it. So it's, it's also taking away this idea that, you know, the, the paternalistic idea of medicine that I, I'm dictating to them that, you know, I need to protect their fertility. I mean, that's their fertility, right? So what? when they're coming to me, Wait, they're we, often I, researched. In I this. thought we decided. <laughs> right. It's up to us. Oh, so, you, need, you need two children and you need three. <laughs> so, so you know, many times they've, they've thought, thought all this through and they know um, it's not a shock to them that they're potentially giving up their you know, fertility with this discussion. And I, I think having that open discussion with them, involving them in their decision making, uh, making sure they know what all the other options are and that we have actually truly given all of those, um, you know, a, a good consider or a good uh, attempt 
um, I think is all worthwhile. Yeah, like you said, there's so many options now, and the patients are more informed than ever. Um, I think sometimes you just have to respect the patient's autonomy to know, know, you know, they know what their, A, their life is like with this disease. Yeah. And they know their um, options for fertility available. And, and there's a lot of women who just say, well, you know what, I never plan to have kids. Right. I never. <laughs> and, and then and after, that's okay. after you <laughs> gasp, you, you say, well, you must not have researched this. Just kidding. But that, but I think that's what they're, I guess, they're seeing in the community. Uh, I guess, the, what's the quote? Gaslighting, right? They just, you know, uh, you know, oh, just, you know, you're fine. Just go home and oh yeah, th- think about how you're gonna have kids? Right. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. I'm, you want to talk about meds? There's another one. Just get pregnant. It'll go away. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. So I've actually even had patients who come in who've seen other, you know, other docs throughout their uh, lifetime, and, and right, they've had that advice. Oh, oh yeah. my doc said to, just to get pregnant. I'm like, do you recommend that? I'm like, I, I don't tell anybody to get pregnant or not get pregnant. That's, <laughs> that's I'm telling you. <laughs> that is your decision, and I certainly wouldn't tell anybody to get pregnant. To treat as a, a con- treatment, as a treatment of a condition, <laughs> correct. But there, but it's out there, and uh, you know. So, um, thanks for bringing that up. All right. So, okay. So, that's what's deep infiltrative endometriosis. So that or die. Yeah. Could it be? <laughs> it more? Could be more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it it kind of is that daunting though because it is <laughs> it is pretty aggressive so it's basically endometriosis implants that have sort of set down roots and caused fibrosis or thickening or hardening of the underlying tissue um, which is not how that tissue is supposed to be it's supposed to be sort of smooth and soft and have what we say are called planes like different um, levels and different layers and basically the disease sort of trickles through and then kind of gets rid of all those layers so it makes everything really stuck and hard Um, and that can be uh, a big source of pain because it can cause these almost like you know hard nodules Um, many times it's next to or behind the cervix alongside the bowel within the vagina um so in a lot of areas of the pelvis this is where it sort of sets in um and that that can be very difficult to treat um and diagnose and um if it's encountered it can be a very complicated excision to to really remove all of that abnormal tissue Tell me about infertility and endometriosis. So I think this is another um, big topic that often goes undiscussed. Um, So, you know, I have young patients that will come in and with that suspicion of endometriosis, I think you have to have a conversation about fertility. So the way I describe it to patients is we're not 100% sure how endometriosis affects fertility. We just know that there's a high rate of infertility associated with endometriosis. And that could be from different ways. So one could be that the disease itself is causing scarring and causing the fallopian tubes to be blocked, um, which means that you know the egg can't make its way into the uterus for, for um, fertilization. The other way is the tubes might be open and testing might actually look okay, but because all that disease is there, it's causing a lot of inflammation, and then the inflammation is affecting the body's ability to to get pregnant. Um, So there's that factor too. And then I think there's also the third factor, which is that 
somehow that inflammation can also affect ovarian reserve. So basically, you know, many women have it in our, we have it in our heads, this literature's you know, shown that 35 is kind of when we know that fertility will start to kind of plateau and decline. Um, but I find for endo patients, it's often much earlier. And we think the reason for that might be because that inflammation is affecting how well the eggs are kind of hanging out in their health. Um, so there's a couple of different ways. It's not always very clear, um, but I think a lot of the data that we have about endometriosis came from the fertility and fertility specialists because that's how it was often diagnosed in the past was a woman who couldn't get pregnant. They would have a diagnostic laparoscopy and they'd go and look around and find endometriosis. And so, you know, I think that's where we get a lot of our information from. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, choo-choo but not related, you know, you could have endometriosis, you get you could have infertility, but it's not always correct causation, you know, co- you know, one causing the other. Um, but I think from the infertility or the fertility or the, the fertility uh, uh, data, they say that of the of the women they uh, evaluate for infertility, 50% will have endometriosis. Correct. Not always causing the infertility, but they they do notice it, but maybe because they're looking. Right. You know. So I think, uh, the, you know, big thing, I guess, the awareness is about the undiagnosed population. So if you're actually thinking about it and you're looking for it, right. you'll find it. All right, all right, Dr. Matthews, any, uh, any topics we didn't discuss? I don't think so. I think we covered everything from uh, diagnosis like to, to treatment. I like to be complete. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. And I, and I think, you know, I think awareness um, really stems from asking questions. So, you know, I think... The things that we just talked about might raise some questions for people who might sound, you know, find that some of these things sound familiar, um, and you know, give them some ideas of other options that are available. Yeah, I th- so let's let's recap the the take home. Mm-hmm. Let's do take home. So to me, I'll, I'll tell me, I'll do my take home. You tell me if I'm right. Sure, or go for it. <laughs> um, so I think number one is endometriosis uh, is present in one out of every 10 women. That could be 200 million worldwide, as we know. And it's present in all women, not just uh, educated white women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So meaning of all ages, including teenagers. Correct. uh, All ethnic backgrounds, including women of color. Correct. Uh, I think the providers have to put that in their deferential uh, way up high. They're seeing uh, these multifactorial pain uh, chronic pain conditions with uh, not just period pain or not just pain with sex, but with GI symptoms, urinary symptoms, Correct. all those things. So, A, let's think about it all in everybody. Uh, everybody, owners of uteruses, right? Mm. Or ovaries, all right. Um, um, also, number two, I think I mentioned, it, it has many symptoms. It's not just period related. So, I think about this. And maybe take better histories, right? We, you know... Uh, we're so separated in medicine these days. You know, we have where there's us, the gynecologist, but then there's the general practitioners, and then there's a urologist, and then there's a gastroenterologist. So everybody seems to focus on their own part of the body, but nobody seems to be focusing on all the Correct. parts of the body. So I think it's just awareness. Just you know, take a, take a good history, ask what else is going on, not just in your our field, but in everything else. Correct. All right. I'm, I'm good so far, right? I'm two yeah, for two. Yeah, right. All right. <laughs> Third, uh, we need to do more research in yes. endometriosis, right? A hundred yes. years later, we don't know what causes it. Come on. Yes. 
right? So hopefully, uh, and there are organizations out there yes. uh, that are helping raise awareness and raise money and research. Yeah, and I, I mean, actually, I have to say, I think it's a lot of the patients themselves that are driving this. I mean, when you know, a patient's diagnosed with this and really understands how much it permeates their lives, um, I think they're the ones really driving the, you know, getting um, lawmakers to pay attention to this, to commit funds to this, to, you know, inspire research for this. So I think that's, I, I really commend their efforts. I've seen that has been a big part of, you know, it growing as uh, in awareness. Yeah, in doing my social media research, which I only do for work, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I see a lot of patient, I guess, testimonials out there, and they're they're a little upset at the medical field for, I guess, not being aware. Yeah, they're 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 upset. I'm like, you know, how come I have to do all this? How come I have to, like, as you said, go I get laws changed? <laughs> and I hate to say it, we have to do a mea culpa. You know, yeah. you know what? Uh, I think you're right. You you shouldn't have to do all this. Right. We know. could be doing better. We I think could be we could better. be training um, our incoming. Uh, physicians better as well. I know that, you know, um, when I was going through residency doing OBGYN, um, I got lucky that I was probably more exposed than others only because I worked with a um, a pretty well-known endometriosis surgeon. Um, But I have to say, like, if you just looked at didactics and our office, um, you know, population, I didn't learn as much of it as I as I could have, especially given how much I see now with the, you know, one in 10 as we talked. I agree 100%. Um, you know, going back to med school residency, it was yeah, retrograde menstruation, meaning, you know, <laughs> that, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, that, and that's about it. And right. so, so awareness is what we're raising. It's Endometriosis Awareness Month, and let's everybody do that. And thank you, Dr. Matthews. <laughs> you're and, welcome. And you're welcome back anytime to sure, discuss Sure, thanks for having me. Is that okay? You can yeah. come back? Absolutely. All right. Very good. All right. Bye, everybody, and we'll see you next time.